Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pappas, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Patrick Phillips, Provost and Senior Vice President at the University of Oregon. Prior to becoming Provost in July 2019, Phillips was the Acting Executive Director of the Phil and Penny Knight Campus for Accelerating Scientific Impact. Phillips, a professor of biology, is an expert in ecology and evolution, the biology of aging, molecular biology, and the genetics of complex traits. Thanks, Patrick, for coming on the show. It's my real pleasure. I'm a big fan because I've been here for a long time, as you know, so I've seen many an episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to hear that. So, uh, I mean, I guess the first question is to say, to ask, what, what does a provost do? What's your job as provost? Yeah, it's a, that's actually the number one question. Oh, congratulations on being provost. What does a provost <laughs> actually do? Um, my favorite title for provost is actually chief academic officer, which sounds a little hoity-toity, but I think that conveys really what the vision of the provost is, is to um, represent the entire academic enterprise at the university, and that means all the deans, all the museums, everybody ultimately reports up through the provost's office, so that's a really uh, big job, but it's also really important in terms of making sure that uh, you know, the academic mission of the university is our top priority, and that's, that's how I view my job. So you, you take on this role in July. What are the, tell me a couple of the things that are like immediately demanding your attention. What are the, you know, the academic issues that you immediately are confronting? Yeah, well, there's the sublime and the <laughs> and the more mundane. Um, of course, uh, the the most exciting is that you know we have a, a president, uh, President Chill, who's really dedicated to continuing to build the, the university as a premier research university, and so it's my job to help execute that. And so I've been working on that and seeing where those opportunities are to integrate programs that we have, um, and then of course we have just kind of the fact that we're a very large, complex organization. We have three different major unions on campus. We uh, have moved through two new contracts during my time as provost, and so very happy that we were able to uh, move through those with the academy intact. That's my number one priority, is that we remember that we're kind of more than a system of employees and employers, but in fact that we have this higher calling of of doing something great, uh, both for our students as well as the, the world and the scholarship that we provide. So I know uh, one of the uh, things that are is currently confronting you uh, is there are some leadership uh, positions that need to be filled. Tell us about those. That's right, so as I said, all the deans uh, report to me and so we had, um, three openings just as I walked in the door. Um, one, the, the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, I asked Bruce Blonigan to continue on in that role for an additional year, basically. We just went through a process of uh, kind of reevaluating, this before I was provost, reevaluating the structure of the College of Arts and Sciences. I wanted a little time for that to uh, kind of settle in before we search for a new dean, and I'm very happy, and Bruce is very dedicated to uh, uh, to looking at that. But we also have a, a deanship for the College of Design. Uh, College Design is really a, a fascinating, unique uh, uh, unit on our campus. They integrate a wide variety of things, and so that's a great opportunity, and I hope a great opportunity for a, a leader to come in and, and uh, see what we can do there. And then also the, the head of the University Library um, is also an ongoing search 
and as you know, perhaps as well as anyone on this campus, the library is such an integral part to what it is to be a university, to fulfill our academic mission. So that's a really important position, but it's also a challenging time for libraries because the written word is changing in its format. You know, we have this historical view of a library as a collection of books. That's not what a library is, it's a collection of knowledge. More and more that's becoming a digital space, and so um, we really uh, need to have someone come on board and help us continue in the transition of what it is to be a university library for this new century. So there's one other question I, w I have about this. So you've just appointed a new executive vice provost, mm -hmm. and that person was the dean of the graduate school. So what's happening there? Yeah, so Janet Woodward Bordren is uh, the new uh, executive vice provost for academic affairs, and uh, we ran an internal search uh, for that position, and it was so gratifying to hear uh, how much everybody appreciated Janet's work in the graduate school and what a great person she is, um, how inclusive across the entire institution she is, and she and I work great together. She's a very calm uh, presence also, which is important in, when you're the center of the storm, like mm -hmm. the provost office frequently is. So mm -hmm. that's working out great. She just started a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so then we uh, uh, needed to uh, uh, appoint an in, interim dean, um, which we also did, and, uh, and that's all working out great as well. Do you think, are you anticipating that next year you're going to run a search for that position, or do you think the interim Kate Mondlock might become the dean? So Kate's, uh, you, uh, so what our idea is that uh, we're doing an interim, I anticipate that's going to be another internal search, mm -hmm. and uh, I suspect that uh, uh, Kate will be interested in that position, mm -hmm. as others might, and so we'll, uh, uh, we'll take that process on. The timing of that's not 100% uh, clear yet. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've just been talking about deans. Let's talk about faculty. So um, we have every year new faculty. So what are some of the things that the provost office does to help w uh, new faculty? Yeah, I always say that uh, my most important role as provost is actually the tenure and promotion process, mm -hmm. uh, especially the, the provost is ultimately uh, kind of the decider of tenure. The president serves as the final kind of uh, uh, appeal uh, point. So that's a real sacred duty. And, and I think it actually the tenure is partially what defines the modern university as a, as a unique entity. So. But I also say I always want that to be a positive process, and the way that we do that is twofold. Mm -hmm. One is to make sure we just hire outstanding people, and our departments are extremely good at doing that. We really are able to recruit uh, um, and hire really outstanding scholars across the board. So that's my number one priority is that we do that well. And then, but we need to support those individuals as well. So um, many of our new faculty come in and they've been postdoctoral fellows or they're coming right out of a PhD. They've had some experience, but being a faculty member is new to them. And so uh, mentorship is really an important uh, key for me. So we have you know, new faculty onboarding, which we do, and now that's been especially reorganized and enhanced by Sierra Dawson in the provost office as well supported by others. And as we move forward, this is actually gonna be one of my priorities I envision over the next couple of years is re-examining our overall mentorship efforts um, and, and working with departments to make sure that they actually have mentorship plans that, uh, that they're 
helping to support their new faculty. There's no question every department wants their new faculty be, to be successful and they're all very supportive. How that translates into direct action from the faculty member's point of view, I think uh, uh, still bears some examination. And one thing that we know that as we continue to recommit, especially to being inclusive and enhance diversity in our faculty, that these are really important elements that we address the cultural aspects of what it is to be a new faculty member as well as just the kind of standard things like you need to get your book done or you need to write the symphony or you need to do whatever you're going to do. So um, we want to make sure that faculty are, are fully integrated into the university. Our faculty are also teachers and another uh, aspect of what the provost does is the provost teaching academy. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the to Provost Teaching Academy is a great way to celebrate uh, teaching as well as to create a community of basically uh, scholarly experts in this area. And uh, I just had my first meeting with them a couple of weeks ago and, and I told them I was, uh, I knew that we had a teaching academy. I didn't know it was called the Provost Teaching Academy. And I said, uh, n never has anyone done so little to deserve so much uh, as to have such a thing. Um, and that's made up of people who won teaching awards, uh, who have gone through uh, teacher education programs and, and uh, our different programs there. So they really serve as a great body of expertise and it helps reinforce, number one, our commitment as a university to teaching, which I know you know is ever more present in our mind as we think about the student experience, student success, which we're really committed to but also a community of, of uh, faculty who are really committed to teaching as a professional exercise and um, have them give us advice. And, um, and that's a central feature of the provost's office also is to create programs that, um, that really support teaching. Um, and so I'm, I'm very thrilled to, to have that. And again, that's gonna be another one of these learning things for me as I uh, take on this role is how can I best support faculty in their aspirations for being just outstanding teachers. So you mentioned in terms of faculty support uh, for new faculty, the importance of um, diversification. So how, does the, how can the provost and the university work to help diversify the faculty to create a more diverse faculty than we have? Well, this is a huge priority for us, as it is for every institution. That's actually part of our challenge, is that every institution in the country is trying to do the same thing at the same time. So it creates a, a highly competitive landscape. Um, you know, we're working on trying to do our part to actually enhance the pipeline for diversity because we need more uh, individuals who are ready to be faculty. Mm -hmm. But that's not an excuse for us. We, we really need to uh, be uh, moving forward in that area. We have a variety of programs to do that. Um, first, we look at the search process itself. And this is a, a discussion that I've been involved with actually for a number of years to make mm -hmm. sure that when we're searching for faculty that we don't narrow it down to this very specific view that actually kind of presupposes uh, diversity out of the process um, so that we provide an opportunity for a diverse set of candidates to see themselves in the position and that gives us an opportunity obviously to recruit them. We also have been um, doing more uh, active recruiting um, and so that's to actually um, have people on search committees whose job it is just to make sure that we're attentive uh, to things like implicit bias and that our structures are set up so that, so that we're uh, engaging appropriately. 
Now we have also have a legal duty not to um, uh, create bias in e any direction, and that's one of the things that universities are struggling with: is how do we enhance diversity within uh, the legal structures to uh, not create preferences for any group of individuals. Um, in the end of the day, I think we're going to enhance our diversity by making ourselves a very welcoming, opening community uh, that uh, celebrates diversity in all its respects. And quite frankly, we still have a lot of work to do in that space. And so the long-term vision, the decadal vision, is to change everything about our culture so that we're, uh, that uh, really uh, commitment to diversity is central to everything that we do. And that's not going to yield as immediate results, but over the long term, that's what it's going to take to really make a difference. Because again, much like our junior faculty that we we're talking about mentoring, it's one thing to hire people, it's another thing to retain them. And we also see that we have a lot of uh, challenges in retention. And so I've only been provost for four months, but that's another thing that I'm going to turn a keen eye towards is exactly what, what are our challenges there? Where are we failing? And um, I've already heard a lot about that, I have to say. So I'm really looking forward to figuring out how we can continue to work together as a community to address those issues. So let's talk a little bit more about hiring. So uh, you held a town hall meeting on November 15th on what's called the Institutional Hiring Plan. First of all, tell us what that is, again, and what did you learn from that town hall? So uh, I learned, first of all, from the town hall, as, as might be expected, we had as many staff people there as uh, faculty members, which is uh, good. The whole point of these things is to provide opportunities for inclusive engagement, uh, uh, anyone who's interested. But people don't have to come. Uh, I think it's always a good sign if, uh, if people are not uh, asking a lot of questions because hopefully they feel that um, that we're being transparent in what we're doing. And that's the whole intent is that. So what is the institutional hiring plan is um, this effort to kind of coordinate our hiring as uh, our, especially our state resources become ever more precious. We really need to be thinking how we're investing in uh, faculty and how we match that both to uh, opportunities for advancing the university in terms of our research and scholarly creative practice, the excellence in all of those areas, but also being responsive to changing student interests and needs uh, because at the end of the day, ever more uh, students are paying the bills and, and we need to be respectful of, of their tuition dollars. So we have a process. In the end, it's just the same as it's always been. It's faculty initiated. What do faculty and departments see as their vision for uh, their own needs, uh, both from an educational standpoint as well as their aspirations uh, from a scholarly point of view? That's where it starts. That goes up through deans, and then eventually there's uh, uh, the group of deans all get together. We look at the whole portfolio. We also have a faculty committee that um, evaluates and provides input, and then uh, we create a list of what the searches for the next year are going to look like. This year, for instance, we had a bit of a challenge because of our budget cut. We actually uh, had to reduce the number of tenure-related faculty on campus by 10. Uh, coming into this search, we don't anticipate that. We're, we're hoping that we'll uh, be able to stay at a steady state, so kind of return to the, to the new normal, which um, uh, you know, we're very happy that that's uh, you know an increase of 80 uh, tenure-related faculty over the last uh, five or six years. So that's uh, been a big impact on the entire university. So, 
You've also outlined three, acad uh, three academic initiative areas for faculty to consider pursuing. Tell us what those are and how that's going. Yeah, so uh, um, as I became provost, uh, one of the things that I thought was important is that uh, the provost, again, serves as this nexus point to some degree of all these different programs. I think the most important thing is for colleges and schools and especially the faculty and departments to articulate their own vision of what they want to do and those are our priorities. Um, and those are the number one priorities. Also, President Chill has his three top priorities, which are scholarly excellence and uh, you know, research and creative practice, student access, student success, as well as creating a diverse and welcoming community. Those are the overriding, uh, those are basically statements of what it is to be a great university. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're focused on that. Um, but in between, there's this uh, opportunity through the provost to just kind of look across the entire university and say, what are we already doing great and how do we amplify on those things? And so that's what I've uh, tried to do. And partially it's to amplify what we're doing well and also what I think we need to do well in order to fulfill our public mission within the state of Oregon. So one of those is in the environment. So if you look at every school and college, uh, the, each one of them holds up their kind of uh, something about the environment, whether or not it's uh, building practices, whether or not it's environmental humanities, whether or not it's environmental law. And we already do this great. People expect the University of Oregon to be great in this space. And it's gr we are great. Mm -hmm. But we're not celebrating it enough, I think, uh, number one. So I want to uh, do that, a better job of that. And number two, there's uh, always a potential that we could create more synergistic uh, efforts and make new investments to uh, further this even further. So I don't think there's any reason why we can't be one of the top, if not the top, public institutions in this broad area of uh, environment. And so that's the aspiration there. We don't, I'm not imposing anything because we're already doing those things. Mm -hmm. Another one is innovation and entrepreneurship with the Knight Campus coming online. We're the only public institution in the state uh, with, a, with a law school and a business school. Um, and more importantly, I think the state of Oregon actually needs us to provide um, uh, more of a leadership role in terms of economic development and uh, convening a conversation of that. So that's another initiative. And then the final one is humanities and humanistic studies. In the College of Arts and Science, we have a division called humanities, but in the College of Design, we have art and art history and um, those areas. We obviously have an outstanding school of music and dance. In journalism, we have a faculty who are engaged in media studies and making documentaries and those kinds of things. So we have a lot of cross-cutting areas in, in humanities, so um, engaging in uh, discussions there. So where we are in all of those is uh, I'm, um, the first phase is just to have a small group that's basically uh, asking the question, how do we engage the rest of the campus in a broader uh, discussion? And that's the phase that we're in right now. And then what I anticipate through the rest of the academic year is that we'll then be opening up that discussion. And different, uh, the different uh, initiatives will have kind of different timetables for what that looks like. Um, but I'm really, the thing that I'm most encouraged about, I, I have to say, being provost is, is uh, how much great energy there is around uh, everything that we're doing. And um, these initiatives are not facing headwinds. Instead, people are really, asking about, well, this is great. Uh, the environment is a great example. Every time I go, it's like, of course, why aren't we doing this? Uh, so I don't feel that, I don't want it to be top down at all, um, but uh, people are really ready to engage across the entire institution. So, so it's very gratifying. So um, you are also 
a scholar and a professor, mm -hmm. so I want to talk a little bit about your work, your, your, your uh, research. What led to your interest in evolutionary genetics? How did that become an interest for you? Uh, so I actually came to, when I was an undergraduate, I came into college thinking maybe I'd be a psychologist. I mean, like a clinical psychologist and mm -hmm. help people. I thought you had, you know, people got jobs and had to do work. <laughs> uh, and so uh, two things happened. One is that um, I thought, well, if I, I should know something about biology. I didn't even take biology in high school. Um, if I was going to do psychology, it seems like a useful kind of science background to have. So I took biology and I immediately fell in love with the ideas of biology. Um, and the other thing is I discovered that you could actually stay in college the rest of your life <laughs> if you became a professor. And so I decided my freshman year that that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I study evolutionary biology because uh, I'm really interested in the complexity of the entire universe. And so when I was in high school, I you know, paid a lot of attention to Carl Sagan and reading Cosmos and those kinds of things. So I think planetary science, that's one way of explaining the major features of the universe. But when you look on our planet, the, the complexity of life is unbelievable. And when I discovered that there are actually rules that you can understand crazy things like peacock's tails and the fact that salmon live their whole life only to die at the very end when reproducing, but that's not just interesting natural history tidbits that we actually have um, mathematical models that can describe why that happens. I just thought that was great. So evolution and genetics are the two features that basically shape all of life that are shared aspects. And so that one, I like evolutionary genetics. I'm gonna do both of those together. So that's where I really got into it. Also evolutionary biology has this um, very broad conceptual uh, structure and so um, the history and philosophy of science is also wound up in that, and that really satisfies my overall level of intellectual engagement and curiosity. So I loved reading all those kinds of uh, books and literature in, in those areas as well. So um, it's just, it's been an incredibly intellectually satisfying area, and it's rapidly uh, progressing because of our capacity to engage new technologies like DNA sequencing. So that's uh, keeping it the cutting edge of that has really uh, been uh, also intellectually engaging. So I know that you do a lot of work on this worm. Sanorebditis, is that right? That's very good. Elegans. Yes. yes. So um, why, why that, why that worm? What's special about that worm? So I actually uh, started my work on frogs, actually as an undergraduate, and I did my graduate work on frogs. Frogs are super fascinating because they undergo this metamorphosis, they're living in water, you can see their whole development unfold before you, it's just amazing. Um, they're really hard to study genetically though, and so when I started my own lab, uh, got started, I decided that I'd be a parasite on the intellectual work of many others, and that is there's thousands of people studying this little worm. Uh, it was the first animal to have its genome sequenced. There's, uh, we know it only has a thousand cells, very simple. So I decided if I was gonna study complexity, I should do it in the simplest complex organism I could. Um, and so that was my intention. And then my work into aging progressed naturally out of that because as I was just getting started in the field, people discovered these mutations that made worms live up to 10 times longer. So it'd be like just doing a couple genetic changes in you and having you live to be 900 years old. And so turned out that piqued the curiosity of people. <laughs> and so a lot of money came flooding into the field. And um, so I had this unusual combination of having this understanding of natural variation and, and especially uh, the genomics of natural variation and then starting applying it to these aging questions and 
that turned out to be kind of a secret uh, formula for uh, being well-funded, um, and so my lab has really grown in that area. Yeah, so you, you're, you and your lab have just received a $1.8 million grant from the National Institutes of Health. So what's that grant gonna let you guys do? Yeah, so we have this whole arm that is just funded by aging. That new award is a, a senior scholar kind of level award called a MIRA uh, award. And the idea there is just to give money, instead of you saying what you're going to do with these specific aims and reports on what your accomplishments are, it's a it's an award to the lab to do good stuff, um, which is what any scholar would hope for. Um, and so we're taking that as an admonition to basically try and be as creative and uh, world-changing as we can. And so um, it's allowing me to support my postdocs and uh, graduate students um, to think big and to take big chances and to really address these core questions. In this case, this is an evolutionary genetics award, not an aging award, um, to really try and answer some core questions in evolutionary biology that have been impossible to ask before because we just couldn't get at the questions at scale with the level of genetic information. Um, and so I think we're at the cusp as an entire field, but I want my lab to be at the front of that to, to really drive that home. And that's what this award gives freedom to do that. And so five years to either change the world or go home. Hmm. So um, you're also involved with the SCORE Research Club. Tell us what that is. Yeah, so I have a, one of my students, uh, Alex DeVertai, uh, came to me. She's uh, African-American or Caribbean-American is probably a better description of her background. She's from Miami. She came to Eugene, Oregon, and she said, you know, where are the students of color? It's, it's really, I don't know what to do here. She had a huge background in um, actually participating in underrepresented minority science research programs. At the same time, I spent my entire career, almost 30 years, engaging in these kinds of programs, and I was dissatisfied with the way we structured them. And so it's a perfect moment for us to get together and think about what are we gonna do. I came back from a sabbatical and I just decided I'm gonna focus on the University of Oregon uh, and not worry about the broader kind of impacts, what are our students doing? Why when I teach an upper division evolution class, are there almost no students of color in that class? What, do we not have them here? Are they not making it through the system? So Alex and I started working on this program to basically take freshmen or sophomores and get them into a lab as soon as possible. Because I think that when you get students into the lab, the relevance of what they're learning is becomes clear. And then there's this other benefit that you actually have a supportive community of other people in the lab that, that are really interested and engage with you as an individual as well as a, a future scholar. So SCORE we created, um, and it's basically a program to uh, uh, get people, um, uh, young students, uh, we do a joint uh, lab exercise and then uh, try and place them as lab in labs as soon as possible. So Nadia Singh, who's a, a colleague of mine, uh, came in and she had an NSF career award and now she's taken over as I've been uh, moved to Provo. So it's really Nadia's program now and uh, Alex is graduating this year. So I'm just uh, proud of that activity and we're really happy to see it continue. Well, Patrick, uh, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. That's a great initiative. Good luck with everything. Um, yeah, more power to you. Great, thanks so much, Paul. I've been speaking with Patrick Phillips, Provost and Senior Vice President of the University of Oregon. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks so much for watching.